You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. If I've not met you, my name is Pastor Daniel. It's excited that you're here, whether you be in the room or online, listening, watching. We love studying God's word with you. We as a church have been going through this book, Exodus, uh, for quite a while. Um, because we've been taking Christmas breaks and holidays and just working through the text. We at Redemption Church love going through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20 tonight um, in this series called uh, God Redeems. Uh, God Redeems. And this is sort of a pattern of how God redeems not only in the Israelites' life, but our lives. And the study has been so rich. Uh, it's been, I've been learning personally so much through this narrative. Um, but I need to warn you tonight, um, we are in a difficult sort of section in the book as we jump into these next few weeks in applying the law. Now, we did study the Ten Commandments, uh, just going through that, and it was really sweet. I really enjoyed that. And now what's happening is Moses is going to go over a whole bunch of rules and ordinances, uh, which, if we're honest, they could really be boring or a little bit dull. Or in your reading plan, you may think, wow, I read a lot today. That was amazing, because I just did four or five chapters. And um, uh, it's almost going into, uh, I put it this way, section 20 tonight. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, um, is sort of like a mini section of Leviticus. Now, if you don't know where the book of Leviticus, it is in the Pentateuch, the Torah. It's your Bible reading plan. You start off with a lot of zeal. You do Genesis. Pretty awesome. In the beginning was a word, you know, uh, God made the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and it's awesome. And you start reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you're like, okay, it's a little sketchy. I don't understand, but you're going through it. Then you get to Joseph, and you're like, I relate to Joseph. God has a plan for my life. This is awesome. We hit Exodus. It's going great. You're doing good. And all of a sudden, when you get to Leviticus and your reading plan, you feel like you've lost steam and momentum. Most people I've talked to when they hit Leviticus, they're like, what is this all about? And so I had two approaches. I could have either gone a big swoop and give you some certain principles, or we could have dived deep into this book and actually help you because I think teaching is an important thing as most people are unfamiliar with the book of Leviticus, why it's important and why uh, it's relevant to us today. And so uh, the Levitical law has 613 laws that God gave Moses in Mount Sinai, just not the Ten Commandments, and they deal with the civil, ceremonial, and moral law of God to guide his people and even us today. You remember that they had just got set free from being slaves. They're becoming a nation. And this section of Exodus is a sample of the laws and judgment given by God. Uh, I saw this sweet graph. Actually, Robin Wilk gave me an awesome a commentary that I was looking through. And there's this graph on there. And it sort of, sort of gives you a picture of this section uh, in a framework where we're sort of going to go. First, God gives a prohibition of idolatry. We've heard that before because it's going to be in the ten, it was in the Ten Commandments. But then He tells people how to worship, and then He gives forty-two judgments or ordinances, laws. Exodus twenty-one uh, through twenty-three, twelve. Then He ends it with another prohibition to idolatry and forms of worship. And I say that because you need to understand Moses is summing it up and there is a repeat pattern in the Bible and the Bible says things over and over and over again, even giving you different angles. And this is another angle of the Levitical law that we're gonna be in. In the midst of the narrative of Exodus with all of his exciting stories, like parting the sea and the 10 plagues and all this different stuff, 
There is a section of this book that is mundane, boring, and full of rules. Can we just say it? I mean, if you want to read it later on tonight, you'll see. But I think this alone is important for us as we start this section and jump, continue in through our study because it teaches us an important lesson that God, well, he works in the everyday stuff of life. You know what I'm talking about? Like the boring stuff, the rules, like the things that aren't as grand or even sexy in life. He's there. He's there. And he works in those things. Oftentimes we love the highlights. We love the narrative. We love the story. We love the, the, the scroll. And I think about this even as a church. Like I love Easter. More people come. It's exciting. It's a holiday. Um, it, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's a big celebration. But what about happens like now? Like what happens on the Monday, on the Tuesday, and the Wednesday, and the grind on Thursday? And you, it's not even the weekend yet. And you're like, oh. Or when the kids wake up or they're sick and it's like, is God is even in this place? What's happening? Is he, I know he's in the, the, the highs, but is he in the lows? And sections like this in scripture teach us always something about God. He works in the everyday stuff of life. We're told even as believers to worship God when we don't even feel like it. Hebrews 13, 15, a sacrifice of praise were to offer God. Sometimes we don't even feel like raising our hands or singing or coming to church. And that is okay. And God meets us right where we're at. So it doesn't matter if we have highs or lows. We can worship God in everyday stuff of life and not just on a Sunday. I love what Tim Chester and Steve Timmis say in the everyday church of their gospel communities on mission. Um, they say, wow, I just totally not. I feel like my clicker, there's like the piano or the waveform is not working. Can I, um, can I have you take over, Brian? I'll just say slide. I'll just say next. Is that cool? I got, I got so much slides because it's very surgical points of things. But they say this, the gospel is a word, but the primary context in which that word is proclaimed is everyday life. It's profound. It's simple. Everyday life, the craziness, the boring stuff, the stuff that we all go through, even our brokenness and our hard times and our sufferings, the normal stuff, the gospel gives us real hope real love, real faith, real joy to meet us, not just on a high or on a Sunday, but in our everyday life. And what God is doing is very practical and maybe even boring with this list of rules, but he's really breaking down the 10 commandments to the stuff of life. You see, the 10 commandments were sort of broken down this. The first four was about loving God. The next six were about loving others. Jesus summarized this in the gospel saying that, that it's about loving God, loving others, and this part is the application of those Ten Commandments, the real-life scenario. You know, like we get good theology, study of God here on Sundays, but we got to walk this stuff out. we got to live for the Lord throughout the week. Next slide. Tony Murta says this. These rules or ordinances we find have essentially apply uh, here, essentially apply the Ten Commandments to specific situations. So, so that's right. There is a God that wants to be in your specific situation and wants to be in these people's situations so much so that he gives them a whole bunch of rules and lists. The word of God specifically applies to our life, the everyday stuff of life. Now, another book on this, Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book, Saturated, which remind me, I have both books for you tonight. Boom. 
disciples of Jesus and everyday life of stuff. He says this. This is a guy that was born, or not born, but doing ministry in the Pacific Northwest. I've seen him from a close. Tacoma was where I was born and raised. He wrote this book, and um, he says, wisdom in the Bible offers everyday direction for how to live the best life possible. We need to see that life is the program because people need to see what it means to follow Jesus. And so again, God is in this section. He's being faithful to his word. Because if you would read the story of God and starting in Genesis, he would make a covenant to Abraham and say, I'm going to make a people and a nation, Genesis chapter 17. And I'm going to bless you and the nation so they will be a blessing to other people. And in the land where other nations were following idols, false gods, bad ways to worship, I want you to notice God is giving them specific direction to do the right thing to be a blessing not only to themselves when they apply these words, but now as they apply these words, nations would say, wow, that's what it means to follow the true and living God? You see, this nation was called holy or separate. God pulled them out so that they could follow him and bless not only their lives, but others. And their love for God and their neighbor would be noticeable and a tangible blessing in their life and to the nations around them. And so this is too so with us as we apply the word of God as Jesus followers. The New Testament, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. Speaking of believers, Christians, you and I that follow Jesus. You're a royal priesthood, one that represents the law and brings the law to people, a holy nation, a set-apart people, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of light into his marvelous light. You know how we proclaim the good news of the gospel? It's in word and in deed. And we share the word of God, but we also, though Jesus said in Matthew 5, we're salt and light. And when we apply these truths to our lives, people notice. So much so, Peter said, you better be ready to give an answer because they're going to notice. The nations will notice the blessings that you have, the peace you have, that non-anxious spirit when the world is fearing death and we say, no, death has been overcome. We believe in Jesus. He's going to give us joy in the midst of this tragedy. These things matter as our witness to Jesus and bringing God glory and they proclaim his goodness. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. That's what he was doing in Israel's lives back then. So Tony Murda, commentary, which I've loved and it's a Christ-centered commentary. He says in Exodus God formed a people to display his glory. He taught them how to live in community with one another. Before we pass this section off as irreverent, think about how important this section was for Israel. They needed some guidelines for living. And these ordinances deal with some contemporary hot buttons and topics that we face often today. We're going to look at these rules in the next few weeks and look at the death penalty, slavery, premarital sex, Orphan care, lawsuits, fistfights, property, stealing. How do you deal with the poor? How do you love your enemies? And so much more. And it's important for us not to just sweep by this because oftentimes non-believers will get some of these verses and they'll actually argue about there is no God because of these rules. And we need to represent and understand why are these rules given? Really, what does it not just teach us a moral truth, but what does it teach us about God? And here's what I want to propose to you tonight. It teaches us that God is kind. Have you remembered that? Can can we just ponder on the kindness and goodness of God? I mean, think about the situation amidst these boring rules. Don't forget Israel had just left Egypt's 
and they were slaves for over 400 years. Now God wants them to be a nation. And can you imagine the chaos it would be to have a nation of scholars say 200 million people. The text says 600,000 men plus their women and plus their wives plus their children. There was a massive amount of people that they had to know what to do and how to do it. And it would have been daunting for any leader, any king, any government to just say, oh yeah, by the way, let's just do this. God intervenes in his kindness so that that way chaos wouldn't just happen. They needed instruction to help them not only to get along with each other, but also to learn how to glorify God in their daily lives. I mean, don't even we, as maybe adults, leaving our parents' house and gunning our own roommates, find that rules are important? You ever had that one roommate where you have a little bit of conflict and you're like, wait, you ate my pickles and you didn't replace them. Are you clean the dish it? No, no, we have a rule here. Don't be putting, leaving out your cinnamon toast crunch just on the sink and just leave me high and dry. And we need to have some rules, some ordinance. Like, how are we going to do things? We have a hard time sometimes in a single unit family, sometimes even greater in a church to deal with. What about millions of people in a new nation? And God doesn't leave them out to dry. We, we should never underestimate the value of God's word in our, in our life as a gift. For in this word, God gives us a gift of instruction. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul would tell Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are so blessed to have a constant communicator in God that speaks to us through his word and is alive and has given gifts to men and we can see the The Holy Spirit works in people's lives through the word of God. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He's our great teacher and he walks with us and points us to the Lord. God is a gracious and kind God that is relational. And that's why these gifts or these rules are given as a gift. Although the law was never intended to serve or to save God's people, we talked about that as we came to the Ten Commandments, it was always there to bring blessing as obedience. Warren Wiersbe, one commentator on this, he said the enforcing of good laws doesn't guarantee a perfect society, but it does promote order and prevent anarchy. Let's not forget our God is a God of order. He wants to give us peace. And when we obey him, we're blessed. And these 42 ordinances or laws in this section that Moses is going to be summing up the Levitical law, they're trying to teach the kindness of God. Even if you think about it, some scholars say there was 42 judgments because six times seven is 42, and six days a week they could just handle memorizing seven per day, take the Sabbath off. So he wants us to love others, to love him, and have a flourish, abundant life knowing him. Just like we have the Ten Commandments, we have these now laws to know more about what he wants in our life, to love him and to love other people. And these rules are being displayed as a primary focus to practically love people in the everyday stuff of life. One commentator said this, loving our neighbor may sound like an abstract idea, but here we see some real life examples and principles. Just like the nation of Israel who sought to apply the Ten Commandments, we too must learn to apply God's word in our situation today. So, before we sum up and look, dive deeper into the 42 rules, there is an order, just like the Ten Commandments. 
He gives us a way to worship. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 through 26, he talks about four powerful principles on how God wants to be worshiped. Because there's an order, just like we say at our church. Our mission is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. But first we pursue God because ministry is an overflow of our hearts, then proclaim God. There's an order here, and God wants to direct their attention to say, hey, everything you're about to do in your everyday stuff, I want that to be worship. Like in Colossians 3, do all to the glory of God. Like whether you eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do to the glory of God. Like how you work matters, and your work can be worship. The way that you interact, the way you behave And so he's going to tell them, don't worship idols like this. And here's how I want you to worship me through the sacrificial system. So let's read that text together. Don't worry. That was half my message. I just had to build it up. You know what I'm saying? So uh, verse 22 through 26, finishing the chapter. Our last message in Exodus, Pastor Robin did a great job summing up those three. I still am blown away. He did three commandments, eight, nine, and ten. And the week before, I could only get through one on one message. What a man of God. All right, uh, verse 22 through the end of the chapter 26. We'll read this and just draw these principles out for us. And I think they'll be helpful to us. And the Lord said to Moses, remember God is speaking to Moses in Mount Sinai. The glory is there. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. As you guys know, there was earthquakes and shattering and thunder and the like people understood God was there and it was a it was it was crazy they heard his voice and the the earth shook verse 23 he says you shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold an altar on the earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hew stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Well, let's pray. We're done, right? You guys got that? Pretty easy, right? This is why teaching sometimes is important, giving you context and realizing the, um, the contextualization of these things. Uh, the first thing he's saying is God alone is to be worshiped. We've heard this over and over and over again. There is a God. He's revealed himself. He speaks. They've met. They've seen signs and wonders. And he alone is to be worshiped. He's a jealous God. Think about the first four commandments. We've heard this before. God has instructed them not to build idols and reflect on the, they reflect the first core four, four commandments before he gets into doing to others. Remember, what you worship, you'll become like. And our God is a God of love. So if we worship him first, It'll transform our lives, and then we'll be able to love people effectively because we'll have the most godly example. If God is a God of love and he demonstrated his love for us on the cross, Jesus said no greater love is this than one laid down his life for his friend, and we have a relationship with that God, he will influence us. Just like when Moses went down from the mountain, we're going to see his face was glowing and shining. And so it's super important that God is now saying, worship me alone. Don't have any other idols. God alone deserves to be worshiped. But yet, how do we do this? It's not just 
who we worship, but how we worship God that he's concerned. Notice how God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses to speak to the people. God wanted to have his people hear his word and respond by faith. And Moses reminds the nation at the end of Deuteronomy when he's sort of going to be passing away and moving this nation on to Joshua. In Deuteronomy 4.15, he says, they saw no form of any kind. This is very important because God didn't want his people to make an idol of something they could see, but purposely appeared in a way for people to have faith and trust his word. You know, like Hebrews 6, uh, 11.6 says, for it's impossible to please God without faith. God is doing something right now as he's speaking to Moses and having Moses speak to the people so that they could respond by faith and trust in God because he is a relational God. And in any good relationship, you have to have good communication and trust. And he wants to build that. So he didn't want to be formed in an idol where only the rich could have this relationship or it would be contextualized in this way. No, no, no. We're all even to believe and to trust in what God has said. I like what Warren Wiersbe said again about this text. He says, the success of the nation depended on hearing God's word, believing it, and obeying it. The nations around Israel built their religions on what they could see, idols made by men's hands, but uh, not what they could see, idols made by, by men's hands, but Israel was to worship an invisible God and have nothing to do with idols. And you know the same truths with us, little children. First John ends, keep yourself from idols. He gives a whole layout of what God has said. Even God demonstrated this love on the cross and manifested. We love because he first loved us and gives us all this doctrine, all this theology. But then at the very end, I think it's 1 John 5, 21, he says, but stay away from idols. Don't form who God is. Let him reveal to you. And this is really important because everyone right now is saying, I have an opinion of what's right. I have an opinion of what's wrong. I have an opinion of who God is and who is not. He's spoken. He's revealed. We go to the living word. Jesus tells us we can go to him and God speaks and he tells us. And so how? How do we worship God? And in verse 24 through 26, there's these four principles that we can apply today on how to worship God that he gives to the nation of Israel. Uh, I find that commentary and the reason I'm quoting is because oftentimes when we read some of these texts and we don't have the contextualization, we're like, man, what was that? And we really need to ponder, meditate, and be like, what is this truth? I got this from Tony Murda. Um, like I said, he has this great commentary on Exodus, Christ-centered um, study. And it's just like super nuggets. Just keep on pointing you back to Christ. But I do want to give him credit because when he did this, I was like, well, there's my outline. There's a little application that we can have. I love how God does that and even works through other men and women with the gift of teaching to teach us all. That's why sometimes we need to make sure that we, we put on the calendar to go to the men's night, to go to the women's Bible study, the community group, because it's not just Sunday nights that God's going to speak. He uses the gifts with all of you guys to be able to minister to one another, to open the word and to have fellowship throughout the week because he works in the everyday stuff of life. I mean, we covered that. So principle number one, verse 24 through 25, or 24a, 25b, there's a principle of simplicity when worshiping God. There's a principle of simplicity when worshiping God. Let me read the text. Let me draw it out for us. The altar on the earth, he says, build an altar on the earth uh, you shall make for me. You shall not build it of hew stones, for if you wield your tool on it, 
you profane it. Now, God told the people to make them an altar out of the earth or stone that they find themselves. Israel at the time and still is a very uh, rocky nation. God would provide that. And he says, don't build an altar out of hue stones. Can I be honest with you? I had to Google this. Thank God for Google. What is a hue stone? It's like a finished stone, a big work. Hue stone, uh, the Google, he said, is a costly stone uh, that's cut. It's meant not to build secure fortresses, but was more like decoration or a finished stone to show off one's wealth. Uh, and I saw some pictures. It's sort of like those houses where the foundation isn't made out of hue stone, but it's made off of block and frame and wood and a solid foundation. Then on the outside, there's a thing called like siding or hue stone, finish stone, where it looks really nice. Okay, This is important because this is how other nations worshipped their gods, by building altars, but they were fancy altars with hue stones or finish stones. And God wanted the focus not to be, or not to be on, this, on the altar, but on him with stone that he provided from the earth, not something that you had to provide. This is very important because what is the gospel? How do we get to God? It's by the, the, the thing that he's done in our lives, the work on the cross, and not us doing a whole bunch of good works. Because if we had to do a whole bunch of good works, or if we had to have a, a hue stone or a finished product or be wealthy to have a relationship with God, then there would be the elite and, and not elite. There would be those that have and don't have. But God says all can come. For God's love the world that everyone believes in him, whosoever could have a relationship with God. And so God wanted the focus to be on him. He wanted it to be simple. Jack McKay says this about altars. An altar made from such costly and aesthetically pleasing stone would be a tribute to human craftsmanship but it would be defiled from the Lord's point of view because it distracted attention from him and his goodness. Have you ever been there before? Even gone to a service and been distracted off of God's goodness because stuff was going on or, or grabbing your attention? God didn't want his people to be distracted by the costly altar to build, but rather himself to be the focus of worship. And I think this is so true for us today. Listen, God should be the focus of our worship. God should be the focus of as we come. Listen, not the building, not the programming, not the lights, not the leader, the music. There's nothing wrong with those things. The altar was still built out of stone, but the substance needs to be God. Our eyes and attention shouldn't be off of a graphic or a design or, you know, like these type of things that sometimes help, but they're not the primary focus. And oftentimes in our hearts, we make the secondary the primary, don't we? This is why a lot of Christians get in a lot of trouble and fight with one another because they're making the secondary issues a primary issue. And it's, it's sad. Church buildings are beautiful, but it doesn't mean you'll meet God or have the presence of God there. Let me give you an illustration. One thing I love is um, Europe, the whole side across the pond. It's amazing. It's just things are old there. It's beautiful. And you know what people do? They actually pay money to go into a church because these church buildings I don't even know how they did it without, I'm like, I'm not a construction person, but even with the t technology that we have today, looking at some of these cathedrals are just stunning. And that was the whole point. Even with the stained glass windows, you would see these buildings being made by Christians in that time to bring glory to God, to say, wow, God is grand. This is incredible to me. The focus was to get on God. But yet years later, you know what's happened? They've died out. People from all over the world go to these cathedrals even pay money, and they're no closer to God because the attention's on the building. 
Now, you have an awesome Bible study. You pray in that building. Yeah, you're going to get God. But that's not the point. People go there to expect God. And what a tragedy it is they're going to a building rather than to the presence of God. We don't need to have an amazing, incredible building, an amazing, incredible gifted teacher or leader, worship. God delights that we gather and our focus is on him. And he will not share his glory with anything. So he says, make the altar out of rocks, not out of human hands, not out of own specialty. It's good enough because it was about worshiping him and not physical things or what he just warned about, idols. And we can make idols out of these things. This is so important because in a culture that is bigger and better, we need to make sure that the method is simple, not taking attention off of Jesus and our worship to him. So he says, make it simple, but also make it pure. There's a principle of purity, verse 26. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may be exposed on it. Now, this has to do with preserving their modesty as they worshiped. Men at the time, they actually wore robes and didn't, uh, God didn't want them exposed as they went up to the altar because some of these altars could be very high. So it'd be like men wearing uh, gowns or robes and God would actually later give priests linen garments to avoid being exposed. God didn't want their worship to be sensual but pure before him. And this seems really weird, I think, maybe in our context and our culture. Um, but many nations at the time were very sensual and would even involve temple prostitutes in their worship. This is why in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells people like women, hey, be careful. Don't shave your head and have a covering because that is the actual sign of a temple prostitute of the day. God wanted his people to be sexually pure and still does. And many cults, even today, have included a sexual aspect of worship that is not from God. Warren Wiersbe says, anything in religious liturgy that encourages the sensual instead of the spiritual cannot be from God or blessed by God. Oftentimes, cults come in and they manipulate and they twist and there's things that are very sensual and we need to make sure this is God is a God of purity. Oftentimes, we can get caught up in worldliness, maybe not sensuality, but things of the flesh and there are standards um, of worshiping God that he values and not idols. This would happen in the nation of Israel. You think that these rules are like, oh man, they just saw God work. In Exodus 32, as Moses is getting all these boring rules, you know what the people are doing? They're worshiping a golden calf, an idol. And you know what? They engage in idolatrous orgy that led to about 3,000 people dying. Our worship needs to be pure as God lays things for us, and this includes our bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it applies to them, it applies to us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So our worship should be simple, it should be pure, and it shows us another principle, a principle of locality. Principle of locality. In that verse 24, it says, in every place, so you're going to build that altar, it's going to be pure, but in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This is huge. This is huge because it means worship is not based off a certain place. Israel didn't always have to go to Mount Sinai to experience God's presence, but rather whenever they remembered who God was, through his word, and welcomed him there, he would come. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in the New Testament. 
In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus would say, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Sounded like Mount Sinai outside right now, isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, that's how, like it says, the thunders were shaking and stuff like that. And like that, whoo, power goes out. Sorry for the recording, but we're still going to worship God. I recently heard a pastor who was studying about revivals, because, you know, with Asbury and just how the Lord's moving amongst young people in the nation and we're praying for spiritual awakening. Uh, he did uh, one of his sabbaticals on studying where revivals went. And he said, God goes, the one common thing about all these revivals in, in America and Europe, he said, God goes where he is welcomed. That's the primary key of any revival and spiritual awakening. God goes where he is welcomed. And I think we shouldn't forget this, that we are to welcome God in our gatherings, in our spaces, in our times, in our moments. I mean, you ever have those moments where you're like having a day and you're like forgetting about God? I mean, I was working all day today in my other jobs, bivocational, and I told my wife, like, hey, I just got to go around the neighborhood, pray real quick, get my mind right, and just be with God for a bit before I settle in and, you know, pastor and teach and lead worship. Like, I call it a midday moment where I just pause uh, and just be with God or people of the age, they call it a daily office, an appointment with God because we just forget. We just forget. But, but saints of the old for a long time have been praying in such a powerful prayer, come Holy Spirit, come. An invitation, come Holy Spirit. And that is a beautiful thing that we're seeing that God say, if you say come, if you remember my name, if you invite, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. The Israelites would have been tempted to think that God was only at Mount Sinai because he appeared in glory there. And with other religions, they had holy pilgrimage to certain places, experience of God's power. We even see that today where you have to go to a certain church. People say, I wish that we just had one big church. I don't, because I don't want to go to Kentucky every week to worship God. Do you? Like, it would be really hard. Or maybe just a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage. Like, no, God wants to meet with his people, and he, and he meets with them that those want to meet with him, and he does it in a simplistic, pure way, and you can call upon the name of the Lord, and the Bible says you will be saved. You can gather with people and worship God is telling them, I will come to you. He's looking for people to worship him, not in a certain place, but with a posture of heart. He is with those that welcome him in local gatherings, in local spaces, and we don't have to travel to certain places to find him. You know, Jesus would give an example of this in John chapter four. John, Jesus told the woman at the well that worship isn't about a location, but about worshiping the living, in, uh, the living God in spirit and truth. Let me read the words of Jesus to you. He said, our fathers, uh, this is the lady speaking to Jesus. Our fathers worshiped this on this mountain. He was speaking of um, Mount Sinai. She was on the other side because she was Samaritan. But you said that, uh, and you say in Jerusalem is the place to worship God, right? Where, where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to this woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the t true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Principle of locality. 
Instead of one big place, we must all worship here on this earth the way God set up his church in local spots and gatherings and meeting in real spaces in our real everyday life to experience him. And he's in our midst. We see that in Revelation, that God has his place in the church and he walks amongst the people. I want you to know that when you come to church. Don't just expect a great, inspiring message. Expect God. Expect to lift up Jesus. He's the show. He's the hero. The last principle we've seen, probably the most important principle, is the principle of sacrifice. It's an altar, right? It says, an altar of the earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it. Sacrifice it. Sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. One commentator said the most important thing about the altar was that it happened on the altar. The altar was a place for making sacrifice for sin. And he gives two offerings. The burnt offering, it was an offering of sin. Leviticus chapter 1 sums this up. You're welcome. Just a little reference for you. A perfect animal was placed on the altar and it was consumed by fire. God's presence would come down and consumed by fire. And the smoke symbolizes God's pleasing aroma and, and offering rising to heaven. The burnt offering was completely burned up and represented a total sacrifice. Another commentator, David Guzik, I don't have it on the screen, but it said the burnt offering was a general offering intended to make one right with God though the uh, through the atonement of sin, this theological word called propitiation. We know this in the New Testament because the Bible says that Jesus was our propitiation. God was appeased by the offering or sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And it was a demonstration, a special devotion to God, consecration. So when you made a altar and made this sacrifice, you were consecrating yourself to the Lord and God was pleased by that. But there was a second offering for this altar in this type. It was the peace offering, Leviticus chapter three. Now you have some devotional reading this week. It was known also as the fellowship offering. Again, leaning on commentary, it also dealt with sin, they said, but had a different emphasis these offerings were given on special occasions to give thanks to God, and they symbolized the fellowship that one had with God. And so in recognition of reconciliation, there would be a peace offering with God that people would give, and fire wouldn't consume it all. No, it'd be like a, a good piece of meat that you would have fellowship with God. It'd be a barbecue. And you'd participate and worship God and eat and celebrate. Hence, you would celebrate you have now peace with God because sin was taken away. There was grace and then there was peace. Like the common greeting that Paul would send to all the churches. He would never say peace and grace. He would always say grace and peace because without God's grace, you can't have peace. There has to be something that takes away sin so we can be right with God and have peace with God. And so now... We know, looking through the entire testimony of Scripture, that the reason why the altar was important because these sacrifices pointed us to Jesus, the gospel. God was setting them up and setting us up to see his glory. Jesus, who once and all would come to be the propitiation for our sins and die for us. He paid the penalty of our sin by being slaughtered as the Lamb of God. Remember when he first came on the scene, John the Baptist, John 1, 29? This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
It would be a total sacrifice that God was pleased in, and now we can be reconciled to God, Romans 3.25 says, through Christ. The author of Hebrews refers to Jesus literally as our altar. Hebrews 13.10. This is all symbolizing of what's to come because there is a certain way to worship, not just to worship God, but how you get to God matters. Jesus is our burnt offering that made a sacrifice for our sins and the fellowship offering that reconciles us back to God. Therefore, when it comes to worship, the most important thing that we do is remember Jesus. For apart from him, we cannot worship and know God. We can't even bear fruit as we memorized on our mission trip, John 15. Or what we just sang, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There needs to be a sacrifice to take place for us to properly worship God. And this sacrifice comes through his son. You see, even after God gave people the law, he knew his people would need forgiveness. I want you to notice that. He gave them rules, and then he said, y'all need some forgiveness because rules will never save. This is what we know and study about the law. The law shows us that we truly need a Savior. So God set up a system to show us the seriousness of sin and our record of debt, and blood would be shed. Someone would die. This was all to point us to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin as the only way because there would be no other gods, no other idols, and none of our own efforts would save us. David Guzik says this, and I'm almost, I'm almost done. The fact that God gave so much instruction on how specifically to offer sacrifices shows that this was not a matter of God, uh, a matter God left up to creativity of the individual Israelite. They were not free to offer sacrifices any way they pleased, even if they did it with sincerity. God demanded the humility and obedience of his people in the sacrificial system. It had to be carried out in a way that was God-centered and not man-centered. And so too with us in our salvation, in our offering, it, to take away the sins of the world. Peter would say in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. Principles to worship. So let us lift the name of Jesus up high always as we gather. Always. It's about him. Let us exalt his name as the Father has exalted his name as we gather and worship him. And let us remember the great sacrifice he has given for our salvation as we respond in worship. And this is one of the reasons why we take communion and do worship after the message. We've heard God's word now. Let's respond. Let's meditate. Let's thank God. Let's present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship, our spiritual worship. Because our God is a God that's alive. He's not dead like an idol. He cares about our everyday st stuff of life because he's a kind and gracious God. He deserves and demands our worship. The Bible says he is worthy of our worship. So let's take time to just sing and pray and partake in communion and respond now. Jesus, we thank you so much that you've given us your word. We thank you we can go through your word. God, even these details, Lord, we know that you reveal these things for our equipping to build our faith. So Lord, as 
Your word says in Hebrews 13, you are the altar. We want to come to you now. We want to give you our heart. We want to have your light expose the dark things in our lives. We want to repent of sin. We want to come in confession. Take time to meditate off your word as we partake in communion, knowing that, Lord, you were the great sacrifice for our sins. As we take communion, we realize, Lord, that your body was beaten and broken for us, that your blood was shed for us, that we can have eternal life in you, forgiveness of sins, and not just that, Lord, but redemption. You want now us to be a living sacrifice and to live for you and to be salt and light. Jesus, you said you are light, and now you say we are light as we look to you. But we need you to transform us. Help us to respond. Help us to meditate, to ponder, to just enjoy your presence now, God. We thank you, God, that you're with us. We thank you that the angels marvel, the heavenly hosts marvel at this great sight and your kindness and giving us mercy. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. We all fall short of your glory. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. May we cling to you and look to you always. May we enjoy your presence together as we worship. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delaware Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.